2: Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about Thor The Dark World? It is the 10th year anniversary of the original Thor. Well, the one that came out in 2011. And we also are getting very excited about that Loki series that's going to drop sooner rather than later. Welcome to the show, everyone. My name is Mark Ellis. You probably know me. Our great amazing host Jacqueline Coley is enjoying her vacation a well-earned vacation I may say my whole life is a vacation she actually works hard and if you saw any of the Oscars you know how great she was at covering that start to finish so she's off somewhere it she might be in Asgard I'm not actually sure where she is right now but she's jet setting she's flying somewhere and having a blast I hope but in her stead we have An amazing co-host in his own right, because he is actually an Asgardian. I read that wrong. He's actually an Australian, but close enough, he is also the editor-in-chief of Rotten Tomatoes. That's right. Our returning Home Alone 2, Lost in New York champion,
3: Joel Mears. Joel, hello. How have you been? I've been pretty well since uh, Christmas time when we talked Home Alone, and I'm proud to graduate from guest to co-host. Uh, you are right, Jacqueline does an awesome job, and I'm hoping I can be just one inch of what she would provide uh, for this show today. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm, gra- I'm so excited to talk about Thor, my fellow Asgardian, uh, Chris Hemsworth, uh, in the lead in that film, <laughs> national hero, so very excited to get stuck into it. It's
2: great. And I'm not sure how the the debate amongst the best Hemsworth brother is in your native land, but over here, I'm pretty sure Chris is winning at the moment. I mean, his brothers have done some big things, but it's still Chris Hemsworth gig, right? He's, he's the lead Hemsworth. He is the lead Hemsworth.
3: Uh, there was a someone asked me the other day: Is everyone in some way related to the Hemsworths? And I think this is this is kind of true. And I count myself as like the 99th Hemsworth, if we're going rankings, maybe. Um, but yeah, no, I think Chris is still number one, Liam a close second, Guy from Westworld third, and <laughs> uh, no, they're they're a great family. Grew up in farming uh, Tasmanian region. I don't know why I'm saying that, but interesting fact. Uh, (laughs) we love the Hemsworths.
2: If if you need a tour guide in going to Australia, recruit Joel Mears, because I think someone in his family owns a bar back there. So that's always good news. And that would be good news for me if I'm traveling there or for our special guest who is built like an Asgardian. We're going to get to him in just a minute. (laughs) But right now, Joel, uh, the floor is yours, sir. Let's talk about Thor The Dark World in terms of tomato meter, excuse me, tomato meter. And what is this movie about? You get to give us the score and the synopsis. At your ready, sir.
3: Right, yes. Uh, tomato Meter, because we are doing as Guardian accents today. Um, it has a tomato meter score of 66%, which is fresh, uh, but only fresh slightly. But mm-hmm. it does make uh, Thor the Dark World the lowest rated movie in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe on the tomato meter. It is 1% lower than The Incredible Hulk. Uh, which is the second lowest. Uh, and then we get up into the 70s and some, and some better films, uh, better reviewed films, at least. The audience score is higher it's 75%. So audiences liking Dark World a little more, but yeah, 66%. It's pretty, pretty low.
2: It's going to be fun to revisit, too, because that audience score is just 1% shy of what the original Thor in mm-hmm. 2011 was. And again, we're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of that film. And so when you look at Thor The Dark World, we talk about it in context of movies itself, but also in terms of the MCU, because we're just so spoiled with how great those films have been. And so this one, a little bit lower, but like you said, still fresh on the meter. And the next question is is not the easiest one in the world to I've been dreading this
3: since I found out I had to do it.
2: (laughs) That's why we give you the job and I just get to kick back. This is my mini vacation because Joel is now going to tell us what Thor The Dark World is about.
3: Thankfully with this movie, they stop every sort of three scenes to explain what's going on on a a blackboard or in a book or or something with a flashback. So that was pretty helpful. Um, (laughs) But essentially what this uh, film is about is Many millennia or hundreds of years ago, the Asgardians fought the Dark Elves. The Dark Elves want to plunge the universe into darkness for some reason. We're not really told why, except that they're called Dark Elves. Um, they, they want to do this by using something called the Aether, uh, which it will turn out is the Reality Stone for Infinity Stone watchers out there. Um, they fail. Their entire species essentially is destroyed. Uh, a couple are left behind, including the incredibly charismatic Malekith, Uh, But they're off into a slumber. The ether is hidden in Earth uh, for some reason. Uh, Cut to present day, 2013, um, UK. Jane Foster, Natalie Portman discovers the ether. Uh, She accidentally becomes the ether or has the ether consumed into her, uh, which makes her eyes dark. Uh, And that's about all it does besides making her faint and give her really (laughs) good hair at most times. Uh, Thor feels uh, the ether, I think, and comes down to Earth and is like, hey, Jane, brings her back up to Asgard to try and help her because she keeps fainting and stuff. Uh, Meanwhile, Malekith, with the excellent braid, sort of wakes up and he's like, ooh, ether, I want to plunge the world into darkness again. There's something happening called the assimilation or the convergence. Uh, I think they switch between those two terms at times. That's going to help him plunge the world into darkness. He goes after the Aether in Asgard, attack on Asgard, stuff happens. Meanwhile, Loki, uh, who's just, you know, done a lot of terrible things in New York, is uh, Hannibal Lecturing in the basement of the big castle in Asgard. Um, Things happen. He comes out. He joins the crew. They try to save the world from some elves. Um, Darcy's back. uh, Eric Solveig's back a lot happens but also nothing happens so it's it's quite an interesting uh, interesting film in, in that regard uh, there's portals there's also portals
2: <laughs> there's there are definitely portals so that was a very uh, well. Thought out thorough synopsis of a movie that is not easy to explain because you can go very surface level with it, which is how you closed out. A lot happens, and also nothing really happens, but it does get deep into some of the mythology, particularly with Asgard. And so there is a mm. lot to talk about. And we're gonna do all that, break down our favorite or maybe least favorite movie scenes with Thor the Dark World in particular. And then once we get to our behind-the-scenes segment, we're gonna extrapolate that into the breadth of the MCU. And maybe if we put on our rose tinted glasses and look back. Knowing what we know now after Endgame, does that improve Thor The Dark World? All of that and more. But first, our special guest. Well, you know what, Joel? We actually have two special guests today because returning yes. to the producerial chair that was magnificently held by Christian Rubalcaba the last couple weeks is Producy Lucy. Lucy, you are
3: back. Welcome back, Luce.
0: Hello, thank you. I'm so happy to be back and see your beautiful, shining faces and talking about today, some of the sexiest men alive. Cough, cough. Oh, well, thank
3: you. Mark and Joel.
0: Um, (laughs) Thor and Loki. And (laughs) and (gasps) Anthony Hopkins, don't forget.
3: Mark, are you the Loki to my Thor. Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely not. going to call myself a Thor role here. I, don't, I think that's pretty presumptuous of me.
2: Yeah, but I'm not um, going to call myself Thor in front of the editor in chief. Yeah. So yeah, I am going to be the Loki, or maybe the I, I'll I'll be the Jane. Joel, you just tell me what role you want me to play. I'm, I'm
3: the Eric Selvig, just running around sort of pantsless uh, <laughs> at Stonehenge. Um, but we should. we we'll us introduce our other guest. Uh, yes, he's going to be, be the Jane in the wings.
2: Foster. He's going to. be, You know what? I'll I'll be Cat Dennings. He think can he's be the Thor. Thor-ian
3: of us. I think, he, I think he takes the thought. I think he's got the hammer. I think he's I, the one who can lift the hammer.
2: He's certainly the one that can lift Because he's got it the guns. You look at those biceps. <laughs> he is the host of Koi Cast and the host of Comic Book Shopping. Basically everywhere you want to get your comic book movie news, you can go to this man online or really in person. Seriously, you can have nine hour conversations with him about <laughs> all things comic book news. I feel like I'm introducing motivational speaker Matt Foley. He's been drinking coffee in the basement for the last six hours and now He is here on the show, returning once again, a fresh member of the Ketchup Crew, Koi Jandrew. Hello, Koi. I love your decorative pillows.
4: I I thought (laughs) Iron Man should come today, but I also brought Wolverine just in case there's any sort of crossover. And uh, because it's the world of Thor, we've got Loki, but the cinematic Loki, the the in-movie movie movie Loki. I'm ready. I'm strapped in.
2: It is Very so great nice. to have you because you really are so uh, adept at, at, at walking people through the sometimes thick, murky waters of comic book movie canon and how things tie in and why maybe if we didn't get a scene initially, we can take a step back and say, oh, well, now that makes more sense. So with Thor The Dark World, I want to start with you, Coy. Simply just give us your reasoning for if you feel like Rotten Tomatoes is wrong about Thor The Dark World. You
4: know, I do feel like Rotten Tomatoes is wrong, but it's within a very specific margin. And I think that's really interesting because of the way Rotten Tomatoes allocate scores is you're looking at, you know, you, you summarize a film by looking at a percentage, which is an assortment of other people's opinions. But I would say this needs to be just to scooch up so it reaches that like C minus mark. You know, if you look at the, the American academia school rating, I would say this needs to be in the low 70s instead of the mid 60s only because it's not as close to a failure as people might perceive it as, but I would still argue it's in the bottom tier of Marvel, but I would say the bottom three Marvel films are all at that 70 to 73 percentile. So I would up it a bit because I don't think it's quite as fair where it lands, but I do see how it's the lower caliber of the Marvel films. But that's saying something because 25 properties in, I think the worst Marvel's done is a CC minus, and that's impressive.
2: It's a magnificent accomplishment, probably unmatched in history. And I don't know if we'll ever see the likes of something like that again. And so, Joel, Coy thinks that the movie deserves to be just a little fresher than it is. It's standing a little too close to the dumpster for his taste. Joel Mears, editor-in-chief, is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about Thor The Dark World?
3: Well... Rotten Tomatoes is never wrong. I have to say that, <laughs> as, as someone sitting in my my, my throne here. Um, all I heard from from Coy was that the tomato meter should be the grade by which American scholastic achievement is designated, and that rather, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. From that, I think we can branch out now. This is a this is an opportunity, business wise. Um, anyway, sorry, I've just got my little notes there. Is Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> wrong? I joke. Rotten Tomatoes. I disagree with the score sometimes. And in this case, I think Rotten Tomatoes is absolutely fucking wrong. Uh, for On multiple levels, though. Ooh. I'm like, because I watch this movie and I'm in certain scenes and I'm like, Rotten Tomatoes is so wrong because this movie should be 90% at this moment that I'm watching it. And then 20 minutes later, I'm watching it. I'm like, woo, Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. This movie should be hovering around a 10% because this is bad. So it's kind of like this. <laughs> I found, you know, re To be honest with you, I don't remember when I first saw this film, because I think it's probably among the MCU movies, one of the somewhat more forgettable ones. Sorry, (laughs) spoiler alert about how I might feel about it. But rewatching it, it was like a yo-yo. I was sort of like, this is awesome. This is terrible. I love this. I hate this. Um, So that's sort of where I am. I think I'm wrong. Maybe the pendulum swings and lands at around 66. But uh, yeah, it's right and wrong depending on which part of the film I'm watching.
2: That is so funny you say that because, you know, of the movie as a whole, we've talked about films and we even talked about one last week with 2019's Aladdin, where there were moments of just pure greatness. And I thought it was amazing. But yet Mm. I still would agree with the tomato meter on that. It's 57 percent at the time of that recording here. Sixty six percent coy. I'm with you. I don't think it's a wide margin, but I'm going in the opposite direction. I think that we can make this movie borderline fresh even more. And I might even say dip into Rotten at around that 57, 58, 59 percent. So, yes, I'm going to say Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. But again, it's it's not by a lot. It's just that this movie, I think, is one of the weaker of the MCU But when you say that, it's like saying, oh, well, I mean, that pizza I had was good, but it's just not as good as New York pizza. Well, of course, it's not as good as New York pizza. It's still pizza. It's still bread and cheese and tomato sauce. It's delicious. So if I think about Thor The Dark World, upon
1: rewatching it, I had a good time. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this.
2: had a very good time watching it. And I think that sometimes, and we'll talk about this more in the behind the scenes section of the show today, we just compare it to similar things. And because it's in the MCU, it just has that designation of being like the 20th or the 23rd best MCU movie. But come on, the MCU has so many great movies. So I'm just not sure we're being fair arbiters, but that is why we are here today. And we appreciate all of our listeners and viewers being along For the ride. So one of the ways that we get warmed up here on the show is we take a break from talking and we listen to our expert review curation manager at Rotten Tomatoes, Tim Ryan. He's going to tell us what the critics were saying at the time of the release of Thor The Dark World. So Tim, at your ready, let's queue up
1: Two Minutes with Tim. Two
0: Minutes
1: with Tim. Thank you, Mark. So here it is the worst reviewed movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and it's still fresh. When Thor The Dark World came out a lot of the critics basically felt like the visuals were as strong as ever but the plot was a little bit clunky. That overall it's fine and it's moderately fun but it didn't achieve the heights of previous Marvel films. The stakes were lower this time out which added a general lack of pretension to the whole thing, but also sometimes it felt like it didn't have the gravitas of previous films. All that being said, as Loki, Tom Hiddleston stole every scene he was in, playing the role to the hilt with wit and sarcasm. And that family dynamic between him and Thor is at the heart of the movie. It's at 66% on the tomato meter with 283 reviews, and it's got a 75% audience score. It is one point ahead of The Incredible Hulk, which is at 67%, but well below Thor at 77% and Thor Ragnarok at 93%. So what did the critics have to say? In a fresh review, Chris Orr of The Atlantic wrote, Though hardly a must-see, Thor The Dark World is better than the original, a looser, loopier hybrid of science fiction and fantasy powered by a pair of magnetic performances and leavened with a number of truly witty moments. However, in a Rotten review, Shubhra Gupta of the Indian Express wrote, Loki is the only character who makes himself new and interesting. When he's around, Thor The Dark World becomes a different film altogether. You wish there was more of him. The rest of it is metal clanking. Rotten Tomatoes' critics' consensus is, it may not be the finest film to come from the Marvel Universe, but Thor The Dark World still offers plenty of the humor and high-stakes action that fans have come to expect. So anyway, that's Thor The Dark World. I'm going to kick it back to Mark. He's a friend from work. Back to you guys. And
2: you are my friend from work, Tim. Uh, Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Loki and stealing every scene he's in is not only because it's the great Tom Hiddleston playing him, but it's also because that's what Loki does. He infiltrates your movie and he becomes the best part of it, even if he's nowhere to be seen on the poster or above the movie title itself. And so with the critics, I think that one of the questions we have to start off our movie scenes with, which we're going to get to in just a sec, is, in, in the broad scope of things, is this the worst MCU movie? And it, it's a question that feels so negative because you're talking about the worst of something, but because it's the MCU, it may still not be all that bad. So I think it's time to tee up movie talk. Yeah, so, okay, let's get right into this, fellas. Do you, Koi, have a specific movie that you hold up, whether it's the Dark World or something else, that you say that is the one that is the weakest link in the MCU canon?
4: I I do. And I do think it's this one, but I don't think it's as bad to have something this good be the worst. So I think that's what we're going to be talking about. But I definitely think the things that this one did wrong strengthened the MCU going forward. I think this was a great learning curve for the entire universe.
2: Okay, Joel, do you agree with that? Is this the weakest strand in the MCU DNA? Or do you have another specific movie that you're like, no, 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 that's the one?
3: I mean, well, first of all, I think, you know, we can we can get negative on the MCU. They, they, they've, they've had their flowers. You know, they, they've done some, they've had some pretty good years, you know, uh, <laughs> both on the tomato meter at the box office and in dominating the entire pop culture. So I'm happy to say, a, throw a few arrows their way. Um, but I actually don't think this is the worst MCU movie. And actually, You know, before I didn't really say where I landed on whether Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. I ultimately would give personally this film in the sort of high 40s, because I think the things that gets wrong are quite fundamental um, Mm, about, you know, uh, we'll get into that. But, uh, you know, I can't forgive a lot of Iron Man 2. I find that just a incoherent, bloated mess. Um, The Incredible Hulk does very little for me. I think it shares a lot of the flaws that this film has in some ways. Um, and I'm not super into Captain Marvel because I think the, uh, I think that film structurally did something that didn't work. Um, and I think did a disservice to that character. So and I think there's a lot going on in, that's great in that film with Telos and, and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I think I'd probably say I have a better time watching this and would want to rewatch this film above a handful of other MCU films again. Pizza. It's all pizza. It's all going to make me, you know, full at the end of the day. Um, But there is better pizza. Some pizza is better. I'm sitting in New York, Mark. I know this.
2: (laughs) I know. Hey, I'm I'm out here in L.A. and I'm just heating up my bagel bites and still enjoying (laughs) them thoroughly. Let's get into the scenes. Let's talk about this, Coy. Is is there a scene for you that thinks this, Okay, this is why I watch this movie and I say, come on, it's got to be at least in the 70s, Rotten Tomatoes. So I think it's
4: interesting we have the exact same bottom four. Uh, but for for similar reasons, this is <laughs> the way I look at the MCU is it's a, it's a series. It's ongoing. It's uh, like comic books. They're monthly. They come out often. They build a world. I think this needed to be dark, and I think it needed to figure out its Empire Strikes Back tone that a lot of Phase Two is. If you look at Phase 2 you've got Age of Ultron, substantially darker than Avengers, which is the last time I was on, we talked about how that, I actually had the opposite opinion. I think it needed to be a little lower for learning curve. I think the learning curve of this one benefited the MCU as a series because it took risks. The character of Thor in the comic books is super convoluted. He's written a hundred different ways, so much so that when they rebooted the Marvel Universe in the Ultimate Universe, which is a lot of what these movies are based off of, Ultimate Spider-Man is as, as a foundational character for Tom Holland's Spider-Man. The Ultimates is a lot of the espionage field that the movies took on. They didn't know what to do with Thor to the point where they made him a guy that you didn't know was crazy or not about his mythology. You don't know if Thor is a crazy hobo half the time in that comic book. And they used that in the first Thor movie because the writer, Mark Millar, the comic book, you could tell he was trying to shape where he would exist in our modern world. So I thought it was a very bold choice to make a Thor sequel that was so different from the Shakespearean allegories and, and grandiose flavor and just submerge him in darkness give it that Game of Thrones feel, but while doing that, upping the production value. This movie looks a lot less inexpensive. expensive. This movie has more than just Asgard going for it. And it took the risk of being an extremely dark film while the MCU had been largely bright up to date. So I would say the things it stumbled with were to the benefit of the MCU as a whole. So it deserves to be higher up in the in the rating.
2: Okay, so what, what's the specific scene that you would say, that's why I love Thor The Dark World. That's why I can go back and revisit it and it's on a par with the best of the MCU.
4: There's two that stand out and the first is the cameo with Chris Evans as Captain America. Yeah. Because him as Loki. <laughs> so good. It gave Chris Evans like the chance to be Boston's Chris Evans. It gave Chris Evans the chance to be like sarcastically American.
1: Oh, this is much better. Whoa, costume's a bit much so tight with the confidence i can feel the righteousness surging hey want to have a rousing
2: discussion about truth honor patriotism
4: god bless them and it was a really beautiful moment of what the universe could have done with captain america it gave us a little bit of that john walker it gave us a little bit of that what america is seen as two people outside of it and loki playing that braggadocious full of confidence while still somehow charming, Chris Evans gave us an insight to the greater MCU without tarnishing the stakes living within Thor. One of the beautiful things about these movies is they find creative ways to be like, why wouldn't he just call Iron Man? Why wouldn't he just call his Avenger friends? And that gave us a taste of what it would have been like to have a team-up moment like in the comic books, gave us a taste of the greater universe without sacrificing the integrity of the stakes while being extremely funny in a very dark movie. That moment of levity was incredibly important. And the other would be anything with Lady Sif. I think Lady Sif was one of the very first strong female characters in the MCU. She's our Wonder Woman. She's got an incredibly captivating story with very limited screen time. And she is someone that would make sense as a love interest for Thor. And it's used really interestingly because she isn't ever a damsel in distress. And at times Natalie Portman is. So it strengthens the love triangle by having Natalie Portman be the the object of his torn nature between being a god and going back and being a mortal on Earth and being a god of Earth. So having a god that you fall in love with so quickly, because of how great Jamie Alexander played this role, I think Lady Sif, one of the most underutilized characters in the MCU, but she did so much with so little in this film that you actually are like, bro, she's right there. What are you doing, Thor? Natalie Portman's incredible. Lady Sif's right there. So it's a really interesting character.
3: Yeah, Joel, (laughs) I've got thoughts on this. I'm like, I can't, I I, am, I am... I'm raring to go about this Lady Sif business.
2: <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. Th- then th- I was just simply going to say that Thor, it, for a lot of this movie, is torn between like him being a god on Asgard, which is what he's used to, and just this like city of angels thing where he's just falling in love with this human. <laughs> so it, th- the choice is between <laughs> Jane Foster and Lady Sif, or at least it, it would appear that he's emotionally torn between those two. You have thoughts on Lady Sif?
3: Well, I think my thoughts on Lady Sif speak to what I think is one of the fundamental issues with the film. It's the film has so much potential and the characters and the stories therein have so much potential. And yet it just never goes anywhere with them. So like Lady Sif, I agree, I love her. I love Jamie Alexander, but where is she? Like she shows up in the beginning, then she comes in and sort of gives a sideways glance. That's the, that's the level of the love triangle we get. Then she basically completely disappears until the end, along with that other really interesting troupe of people now featuring Zachary Levi -hmm. Levi. Um, with Natalie Portman's character. Again, you have this extraordinarily smart, we're told, um, scientist (laughs) who is (laughs) imbued with this sort of ether um, and there's, I'm just thinking Dark Phoenix, go Dark Phoenix, or at least do something with these powers that you're given. And then nothing. We don't, we don't get basically anything from her. And it feels like at all these points, these interesting things could have happened with potential, but they just never take off. Uh, so that's my, my main issue with it. And if I'm thinking about a film, I mean, a, a scene from the movie that illustrates why my main issues, it's sort of separate from that, is basically anything involving Malekith. Because I think this character, like the dark elf, sort of um lore seems to be compelling seems to have a lot of potential um but we and his mission is 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 massive like his ambitions are huge right darken the universe but we never actually get a moment where we realize what's personally motivating him we barely get to see him sort of talk about his his mission
5: you needn't have come so far as guardian death would have come to you soon enough not by your hand Your universe was never meant to be. Your world and your family will be extinguished.
3: It's not un-Thanos in what he wants to achieve, right? But Thanos, we know, has a philosophy, a guiding principle, that Malaketh is just a guy in a braid. And I can't, I just, I'm I'm not into it. Again, potential, 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 snuffed out.
2: See, by this point, I I was kind of in tune with getting to pull for the hero so easily in the MCU because the villains, even the cooler ones aesthetically, you just, they didn't quite live up to match their superhero foils. And so when Malakus shows up, it's like, all right, look, we got to defeat a dark elf. Now, do I want to come across him (laughs) at Santa's workshop? No, but are we going to be able to take care of business? Yes, that's me walking into the movie. But then the opening scene is one of my favorites is because it's just this cool action scene that's setting up what we are to expect and so when you get that exposition which is clearly what that scene is set up for it it looks really cool and so it it, but it also shows us just how fearful we should be of malachis intent of wanting to darken the world because this is what it's it's going to look like you know why
3: why does why does he want to do it though (laughs) he might be my my vibe i was
2: just like it it might just be a cryotherapy fan okay do you have an answer (laughs) for that is is there a, a specific reason that you can find in Thor The Dark World that even hints at why Malekith has this intense motivation. So this is one of those tricky
4: things where it's removing comic lore from comic movie, and it's really hard to separate. It's like reading a history book and then being like, forget that, going into the movie based on the history book. The comic books have so much mythology with the Dark Elves. Malekith has decades of issues of why he wants to do these things, so it's hard to remove that. But in the film, they never give more than the opening... Odin speech about his his goals. I kind of tied it to Laffy and the, the ice realms and those things because in the comic books there is some um team-up aspects between those two characters. But in this film, I think it's just a matter of how the elves feel betrayed because the elves, the dark elves are, are separated from the regular race of elves and they don't really explain that well. And so they want to put the world into darkness as kind of a revenge on feeling ostracized and, and put in the corner and, and being these creatures that are not spoken of. So none of that really gets across. But I, to what you were saying, at this point in the MCU, this is right before Winter Soldier. It was actually funny, I have it on Blu-ray, so I watched it and the Winter Soldier trailer is what you watch before the movie that was the first film in the MCU that didn't suffer from the the gray minion problem. Like the Avengers had the gray guys who fought with the the, the space hole. and, And the first set of the phase one, you know, you've got Thor ending in New Mexico because it's like, okay, we've spent a lot of money on Asgard what if it's in the middle of nowhere and we have one town we can blow up? (laughs) Like, there's a lot of phase one issues with the villains where they've got to kind of either put them off to the side to save on money or we have to clone one special CGI character a lot. So we forgave the villains in the first phase a lot more. But when you're looking at this film by itself, I do think it's unfair to have this near the same rating as a Spider-Man 3 or an X-Men Last Stand, which it is. Spider-Man 3 is at, at 63%, X-Men The Last Stand is at 58%. This is a lot better than 10% better than Last Stand. This is a lot better than 3% better than Spider-Man 3. And, and what's cool about Rotten Tomatoes is it, it it colorizes black and white photos. Like World War One photos colorized give you a more conscious grasp of the experience and Rotten Tomatoes aggregates a black and white scale into color. So I would argue that well, oh, I'm stealing that. Sorry. <laughs> I was gonna say for Joel, my next
3: for my next press interview, I'm definitely using. Guys, that get me on Rotten
4: Tomatoes. I will wax philosophical about I your am, very I system. Not,
3: <laughs> I'm not even remotely crediting you either. Just if but, come
4: on, guys. <laughs> this episode's never gonna air because it's like I had this great idea: <laughs> aggregating color.
3: There's but someone it, knocking on your door to take you out now. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you take the SD card out of the camera. This is all gone, <laughs> Spidey. Cat, I'm sorry, but it it aggregates color to make you feel like you're you're part of the experience in a different format. So. I would argue that a score needing to reflect the experience as compared to other superhero films is fair, as opposed to just being within the MCU. So that's why I think it needs to be higher, because yes, it's 10 years more recent than your Spider-Man's and your X-Men The Last Stands, but it also takes a lot of bolder chances beyond the villain. The villain doesn't necessarily work. but. The, the world building in that opening scene, the Star Wars-like space fighters, all of the darkness that allows it to be, it's like Kevin Feige was starting to be able to listen to MCU fans about some of the villain problem. He was starting to listen about things looking like they were made for TV. And this was a really bold step in the direction that allowed for everything post-Winter Soldier. This Winter Soldier in Age of Ultron got us to have Endgame and Infinity War. Beyond the storytelling elements of the family, this movie needed to happen for us to get there.
2: And some of those character motivations that we talk about, not just with Malekith, but with Thor particularly him and Loki together, I felt like the movie missed the opportunity here. And this is why I don't think it's one of the better MCU films. Look, it's not fair to compare any movie on any merit to The Empire Strikes Back. But inevitably, if we talk about a sequel and that sequel gets darker in tone, we say, oh, well, it's like The Empire Strikes Back. But The Empire Strikes Back succeeds on how much we care about the relationships, whether it's Luke developing a friendship with Yoda or it's Han and Leia getting together with... This movie, I feel like it realized that we just don't quite have anything to glom onto. The brother dynamic is the closest to that. And apparently, upon test screenings, that's why the audience reacted like, uh, You ain't killing off Loki. We love him in this movie. <laughs> and so you got to get more Loki in there. But what I really think missed the point and just sort of fell back on its laurels of, well, of course it's going to be emotional when you lose your mom. They they just play on that so much. And I think it's just a little bit I don't know, I don't want to say manipulative, but it just feels a little unfair to be like, okay, well, we're just going to experience the mom dying. Hey, Russo's so good, I was so upset. When, When we lose her, and naturally it's going to fortify a character, but I feel like we've been there so many times with movies that we could have just had something else in its place, or maybe earlier in the movie, to get our characters, particularly our heroes, motivated and into that hero mode.
3: It's a manipulative moment and a lazy trope. Like it's a, okay. a trope that we've seen far too often where mothers, sisters, wives, etc., are killed to unite. Uh, you know, I, look, we're, we're three men here, but they, this, this, this is a problem that happens with films, right? They, they use the women to motivate the men in this way. Uh, and just so people, I don't think I mentioned in this synopsis that um, uh, Rene Russo's character Frida, Frigga, apologies, um, dies. Uh, and she does. And I think it is an awesome scene in some ways because we get to see her pull out the sword and fight um, the elf. And then, unfortunately, she is killed. Um, but yeah, I thought that as a, as a way to sort of force those two boys together was really lazy um, and unfortunate and robbed us of a great potential character who could have been another strong woman rather than someone whose potential was again snuffed out in this film. Um, that said, the movie really does work when loki and thor are together and i agree with koi that that scene with the um the chris evans cameo when they're walking through the palace it's sort of they've just gotten out they've got this plan uh they're shape-shifting it's all witty bander and uh, i believe was written by joss whedon who was brought in to sort of punch up the script and give the film some comedy uh is brilliant and from then on i'm with them Even though I was really annoyed at what got them (laughs) together.
2: Coy, you have the final word in this segment. Do you feel like that was just, as Joel said and I intimated, that it was just sort of a manipulative, lazy trope to have the mom die and that's the only thing that could get the brothers together? I know they're not seeing eye to eye after everything that happened in New York, but do you feel like that was the only thing that could get them united again? Or, Or do you think that we could have done something else and kept a great, strong female character alive in the MCU?
4: I do think it is a a waste of Rene Russo Anytime you lose Rene Russo. Uh, Obviously, we know with the benefit of hindsight, not talking about other movies too much, but they were able to bring her back in a really creative way, especially using deleted scenes from this film. But I I can't think of another thing in canon that necessarily would have brought them together. I I, I see the manipulation. I see how they're not even pulling our, our heartstrings. They're punching them because there's nothing else they can do but at the same time, the Odin bond isn't there, and Loki doesn't care about humanity at this point. Loki isn't invested in much besides his mother. They There are enough scenes that reference how the mother is the thing that unites these brothers, so it's kind of hard to think of anything else they could have done with the canon up until this point. So I can acknowledge the manipulation while also acknowledging that where the story was and with the benefit of timing, this movie's already clocking in at two hours long. There's not much else you can add to it without adding a substantial amount of screen time That would put Loki and his brother together. And I do think that's essential for the third act. The movie doesn't work without Rene Russo dying by the way it's set up here. I don't Hmm. love it, but I do think that's the only way the third act works.
3: I don't disagree with that Um, in some ways, though I do. (laughs) 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 But I'm still annoyed with it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that what we can do sometimes, and, and look, it, it has been a trope that has been used so many times in film history that maybe we just blame those movies for using it when they could have done something else, and now it makes us feel like it's a trope in the MCU when we uh, really needed it to happen. So it's all those other movies' fault that Thor right. The Dark World, it doesn't feel fresher with killing off the mom to help the brothers reunite. Final word on this for me is that I completely agree with when Tim Ryan in his segment said, that visually this movie looks phenomenal. I really think a lot of those effects still hold up. And so I will give a big tip of the cap to Thor The Dark World on that front. And now it is time for us to shift into behind-the-scenes talk. Do we have music for that? We certainly do. And this is going to get really fun because I have some trivia for the boys that I felt like we should probably kick off with because... (laughs) It's going to be tough to talk about this in the context of the MCU and in even broader terms of making the film without possibly some of these answers being given away. And so, Joel, I'm going to give you uh, you and each uh, you you and Koi each have one trivia question to ask on your to answer on your own, and then I have a game that is going to elate Koi and frustrate the hell out of Joel. So, Joel, give me a number <laughs> between one and two. <laughs> two. Joel picks two. Okay, so oh, good. You got a question. I think you can actually think you can get this one.
3: And Joel, the reason probably, he says that is because I'm not the world's greatest MCU expert. <laughs> just I, just to set up the expectations, because you know people may think that in my position I'm I'm well steeped in this and grew up uh, knowing what a Malaketh was. Uh, I did not. So <laughs> that sort of set. I just want to set the table stakes here.
2: <laughs> At whatever bar that your family has in Australia, is there a the one
3: behind box? me? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there is a bar behind me. Um, there is a, a bar, bar behind me and it looks quite delicious. Uh, yeah. There is no trivia night, but Mark, if you were living in far north Queensland currently, I'm sure we'd put one on just for you because you would bring those crowds.
2: Do not um, tempt me. I am happy to make the voyage across many ponds to get there because it does seem like a blast. So this is Joel's question for a point. Joel, who is originally set to direct Thor The Dark World?
3: Well... I believe there were multiple people vying for it, but the you person get a point who signed for everyone. on was well, well, I'm gonna rack up some points here. Uh the the big one that everyone knows, I think, and that actually signed on um was Patty Jenkins, the director of Wonder Woman, uh Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four, vastly underrated film, uh, and Monster. Um, and then I believe they decided to take oh, I'm giving I'm giving Bonus info here, I guess. No, you, uh, I believe it, it, they decided to uh, to um, she decided to part ways uh, when they decided to take the story in a different direction. She had a sort of Romeo and Juliet, uh, Asgard Earth thing situation going on, um, which I would have loved to have seen. Um, and she might have even had a motivation for Malekith somewhere written in her script, but it just it wasn't <laughs> to be.
2: Um, you are a thousand percent correct and you get many points because I was also going to ask you what storyline did she want to go with? And it was that Romeo and Juliet vibe. Alan Taylor uh, was vying with a, another Game of Thrones director for that mm. job. And Alan Taylor ultimately got it. And so, Koi, now we go to you to tie Joel. Uh, here's my question. It's a little bit of i I'm going to give you some leeway with the answer here in the sequel to this movie, Thor Ragnarok. Thor mentions that he and Jane broke up. How was this handled? In the movie
4: uh i i believe it was just a single line of dialogue it was it was just pure exposition without like no context and it was just like a don't want to talk about it and i think it was i think it was with loki but i'm not 100 sure
2: okay and you, you are you're, you're fairly correct here unless lucy wants to weigh in
0: yeah so i wrote a bad question i'm sorry <laughs> Specifically, I was rushed for time and I just pressed send and it's a bad question. Okay, ultimately, how did Marvel explain away that line in Thor Ragnarok where the end post-credit scene, Thor leaves the throne, right? And it's like, Odin, I don't want to be the king. And then he goes and then he and Jane are making out in that post-credit scene. So how did... Marvel bridged the gap between what he says in Thor Ragnarok and... Well, the
4: the bonus, a minute. little extra bonus point, like the Romeo and Juliet, was the woman he's making out with is actually his real-life wife because she's the same height and looks the same from behind as Natalie Portman. So the woman in the post credit scene isn't Natalie Portman, it's his real-life <laughs> wife, uh, which is lovely because he got to like a passionate snog and no guilt. Um, I love that. Yeah, he got to like share a moment with his wife in the MCU, which I think is so precious and darling. And she's fantastic in the Fast and the Furious films. Um, but uh, I believe they explained that she's like off doing work on the the mysteries of the universe from the second film. Like she's she's doing studies. Is that is that the the more specific answer to your question?
2: That sounds good to me.
0: It sounds pretty good. I think ultimately though they they ended up doing another post credit scene, right?
4: They did, but not in, not in Dark World. I, I I give up. What's the answer?
0: Well, right, right. Where where do they where do they right. do Am it? Am I beating Koi? <laughs> I don't Joke know. It's a, has Koi on the ropes? <laughs> I wrote a bad question. Ultimately, How did this
3: ulti- <laughs> Oh, I got the My, question that made sense. My
0: question is bad, Koi. You get points for that. I I tried to answer all the things that. I had
4: context for. I Ultimately,
0: <laughs> didn't didn't they didn't Marvel like reshoot another post credit scene that kind of was like then thor and jane being like i can't be with you and then they break oh, up. did they ever do let that me step
3: in here there was an alternate ending of the original script right yeah i don't where, think they shot it but yeah I think they, they never know. shot it lucy mm. and i'm getting bonus points <laughs> <laughs> again mark for stepping in on coy's question. Yeah, question you guys because i am the answer the question was misleading times too coy Koi, uh,
0: Koi gets yeah. the point i there was really watched scene. Scene. that Oh, no. Okay, so Joel, there was break a breakup
2: scene. scene. There was a breakup scene that they wrote, but never filmed.
3: Correct, from my understanding, is that he did feel... So originally, um, he was supposed to go up there and take the throne, right? And then when the test audiences reacted so badly to Loki's death, and they decided to shoot that scene so that Loki had indeed been Odin the whole time, which is, I think is my understanding of what goes on there, um, they then had to give uh, Thor a reason not to take the throne therefore he went down to jane they changed what they are originally going to do is 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 that correct
2: that sounds really really good and it gives I sound us sound smart
3: but am i right and <laughs> it gives fun us fun facts sorry he's oh, trying it's, to get more really bonus th- points <laughs> <over here. laughs> Oh, I'm going to come one on top of you again after this.
4: There's a scene that they filmed for Thor Dark World that didn't fit in the context. That was extra Natalie Portman, who had at this point left the MCU. She was done after Dark World, but they wanted to incorporate more of Thor Dark World into Endgame for the time travel stuff where mm. she was still not used. So the scene in Thor, uh, in Avengers Endgame is actually a deleted scene from this film where Rocket goes to retrieve the Aether from her. And that's why the editing's so tricky because she like wakes up from bed and Rocket's like, hee hee hee. But all of that was shot eight years earlier for Dark
2: World. And that is why, okay, I'm going to give Koi equal points to Joel right now, simply because all of this line of questioning led to that, which is, I, I mean, I was lucky enough to be in a jam theater opening night to see Avengers Endgame, like a lot of our fans listening. And when we saw Natalie Portman, it's like, she's back. Holy crap. This is amazing. The, the Just raucous applause. Nobody realizing at the time that that scene was from Thor The Dark World, but- but it also gave us some level of maybe to a way to brace ourselves for the news that, hey, Natalie Portman is going to come back in Love and Thunder, which is going to be the next Thor film in canon, and... So I, I was interested in those questions for you guys, one, because I like to torture everybody that's on the show with some <laughs> trivia. But more importantly, the fact that we now get Jane Foster back in Love and Thunder and it's going to have that tone that Thor Ragnarok had is what it. you would obviously look like given the fact that it's Taika Waititi doing it is could we have had Thor Ragnarok and that tone with the dark world or did it simply not work yet?
4: I think it's too big of a leap from the first one. I think we needed the darkness of the second, I think we needed the Empire Strikes Back to the Return of the Jedi. If you look at any of the trilogies, if you look at the MCU as a whole, Phase one is very much A New Hope, phase two is very much Empire, and phase three is very much Return of the Jedi, but especially the Thor franchise. It literally goes from discovering you're a hero and getting rid of your own hubris to a dark middle saga with losing a hand to a a movie that would have Ewoks in it. Ragnarok could have had Ewoks and it would have worked. So I would argue Thor is the most like the Star Wars of them. And we know Kevin Feige has modeled the phases like that to a point, I don't know if it would have worked if we went from Kenneth Branagh right to Taika. I don't know if that would have translated. I also don't know if the Patty Jenkins, Romeo and Juliet would have translated because I think the moment where he hung up Mjolnir on the coat rack and where the the Chris Evans scene, all those moments of levity made the audience realize we really need this. And I think we needed Chris Hemsworth to be done. He was done with this character. He was bored. There's a lot of interviews about how he was like, I didn't know where to take him. I think we needed that level of broken man to have the comedy be so high because they basically realized they cast a comedian that just happens to look like a god. Like you, you don't expect Chris Hemsworth to be as funny yes, and perfectly does. comedically timed as he is. They, they discovered that on the day and were like, wait, we can make a comedy with Thor. All of that, like the butterfly effect of Dark World Goddess Ragnarok, in my opinion.
2: Joel, you agree with that? Because that would have been another mm. acceptable answer for who was set to direct the next Thor movie was originally Kenneth Branagh. It, it just, he didn't have time and it didn't work on his timeline with his schedule to come back and direct Thor The Dark World. So it never really materialized in anything.
3: Well, thank God, because then we got Artemis Fowl. But, um, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, what was it? Yes, I agree with everything that Coy said basically, <laughs> that we did We did need this film to sort of uh, kind of be a wake-up call to what could happen and what could happen in phase three. I think it would have been quite a jarring tonal shift. I do think, however, two things. When you look at the idea of this film being so integral to Endgame, or you look at this film in its place, what it set up for the MCU, both uh, in terms of on-screen narrative and behind the scenes of where they took it, great that we benefited after it, but that doesn't change the film itself. Like, so when I I, I just, I like to say, you, you can't just retro retroactively say, well, because this film set up all these things and has its tendrils and all these better films, therefore the film itself is better. No, the film is still a pretty big misfire uh, that just happens to have some ideas that other people went and, you know, made into more interesting, compelling products in my view. The other my- thing is- I. Th- Oh, sorry. The other thing I just wanted to say and piggybacking off what Koi said, and I think it's important to talk about in this film, is that yes, Chris Hemsworth does look like a god and he is extremely good looking and they make the absolute most of that in this film with gratuitous shirtless shots by getting rid of that ridiculous dyed um, yellow blonde <laughs> the, the dyed eyebrow eyebrows. beard situation. Yeah. They give us grungy Loki looking like, I don't know, he's about to perform a Vampire Weekend song after his mother. But I just I'm... <laughs> I'm just as you know, as a man who's uh, you know not 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 shy of the Asgardians. Uh, I, I was appreciating what uh, what was being served in this film.
2: <laughs> and it's interesting but- that, that Joel brings that up, uh, Coy, because I always go back to the Bond movie, Quantum of Solace, where we had this great opening with Daniel Craig as Bonds with. Uh, Casino Royale. And then Quantum of Solace, is, you just walk out and you're like, w- w- what exactly just happened in that movie? And you just think, well, don't worry. The next one is going to explain everything that we're still wondering about with that. And Skyfall's like, no, nah, we're just going to make a great Bond movie. Don't worry about Quantum of <laughs> Solace. So it is hard to sometimes go back and retroactively change how you feel about a movie simply because of what it's set up. But if there was a movie to be a candidate for change, it sounds like it was the dark world.
4: Well, and, and, you know, the argument that was just given, I, I agree with that for Age of Ultron. I think a lot of people give mm. Age of Ultron a lot of leeway post-WandaVision, post-Endgame, post-Infinity War, because it had to be a connecting piece. It did the things that Iron Man 2 wanted to do a little bit better, but the film as a whole, if you watch the episode I did about that, is still a lot of a mess. I would argue that Dark World is at least a cohesive thing. It's not a great thing, but if you're looking at a bell curve, a, again, back to American academia, a C's average... I would say this is a C minus. I would say it's below average, but it's still like it put in the work and it's its own contained thing. So I don't think I think it's unfairly maligned, but I would say this and Iron Man 3 are the most unfairly maligned. I think Iron Man 3 belongs in the top 10. I agree Hmm. this is in the bottom three, but I'd say it's higher in the overall scale of comic films just because Marvel's a little bit
2: stronger as a whole. It's I have a. Yeah, go ahead. Mark,
3: I just I have a. Slight side note on this, and it's kind of a, it's a moment. I don't want to take us off the rails, but I want to pick Coy's brain because he's so smart about this stuff and so steeped in it. Um, you already stole his random.
2: opening line about Rotten Tomatoes. So, Cole, it, I, Coy, this so, could be appropriated for Joel's
3: frankly, own Frankly, I'm this just is, giving future
4: Rotten Tomatoes information. This is just me. Is, I'm just giving, crowdsourced.
3: Trying to get some lines to share and take credit <laughs> for it. I was watching this film, and I'm curious how it plays out in the comics um, and talking about Asgardians. Are the Asgardians kind of evil? underneath it all like I feel like this is a kind of um Roman Empire sort of try what why do they get to rule the realms and why do they get Mm. to sort of tell the elves and the frost monster of people thingies what to do and sort of go and travel to their there's a scene in this movie at the beginning where where we first introduced to Thor looking very Thor and he's beating up some locals in some (laughs) other realm right and I'm like and like, they didn't even come to you. Why are you guys going around to all the, this is like the empire. I feel like Asgard is not so great. And Odin in this film, um, although in the end it's revealed, not really because it wasn't intended this way that he's played by Loki, uh, is kind of an ass. Like he's kind of terrible. And then there's, there's literally a point when I think the, like the rebels come up and these guys are hiding in their gold castle. And I have this theory <laughs> that Asgard and Asgardians are actually the evil force in the Thor films. And is there any hint of that in the comics? I'm sorry, Mark, I went off topic, Though, but I'm curious I, about this point. I need
2: that question answered. I mean, in the end, it doesn't really matter because Asgard uh, blew up. So, it, <laughs> you true. know, we, we took like care the Death of shows. Like the Death Star. Like the Death Star. <laughs> like the Death Star, like both of the Death Stars. Yes. Koi, is Asgard actually the home of most of the bad guys in the galaxy?
4: So that's a really fun question because that's something they've been dabbling with for about 60 years in the comic books because the the, the character of Thor is actually available to all comic bookdom because it's a god. So DC can use Hercules, Thor, Odin, all of those characters because it's more of an open source character. So Marvel has a really interesting task where he's one of their Avengers, he's one of their leads. So they actually look at that quite often. You've got Donald Blake, who in some continuities is the human form that Thor takes on to learn humility. And they actually hinted that in the first film with him taking on that that joke monitor as a scientist in the first film. So there's a lot of commentary on how humanity sees the gods because when he takes on that role of humility, he remembers his past and how he perceived himself. And you start to wonder if that arrogance is actually how the gods perceive themselves. You've also got the elements of this whole thing, this this arc is largely based on the Jason Aaron run, and he's one of the longest running writers on on Thor of all time. Uh, He wrote Thor for over eight years, and he's currently writing some Jane Foster Valkyrie stuff that's genius but it's it's a lot about how the space cops are basically the asgardians they're they're this ruling dictatorship and what line is there in control versus peace what line is there in manipulation as a god versus taking control so are the dark elves in the right are the are the other elves mm-hmm. in the right are the are the frost giants in the right because it does seem like these gods come out and say like hey this is our way or no way and if you look at the the parents of greek gods like hercules zeus Um, I mean, Zeus especially just kind of put his dick in anything and that caused all the problems in in that entire mythology. But Odin also does that a lot. Like Odin's kind of a problematic character. So when you look at Loki playing Odin, it was really fun for me to see Anthony Hopkins just kind of chewing the scenery because Mm. that character does work as a, a scenery chewing character, even if it hadn't been Loki, because Odin's not the best guy. So I would argue the commentary on absolute power, corrupting absolutely, is especially important for the Asgardians. And it's kind of like having an eyeline. You always want the eyeline of the audience to be your hero, otherwise they become your antagonist. So with Thor being our eyeline, the nuance of what it means for him to be human, what it means for him to be an Avenger, and what it means for him to be a god, are the three perspectives you're dealing with, and I think that's the reason he wasn't in Civil War. Because if you look at the arc of the MCU, phase one to phase three, the center point is Civil War. And when you talk to the writers, they'll tell you that was kind of the cross in the X where you have the end of the MCU ending with Tony making the selfless choice, Cap making the selfish choice, and at the beginning of the MCU, Tony's the one that's making bombs, Cap's the one that's jumping on on the grenade, and that crossover happens in Civil War, Thor's not there because he's on a walkabout. His experience of what it means to be human is him losing himself, and that's what Infinity War and Endgame really represent. I think that's why he's the best character to have four films and beyond, why it's good for him to be in Guardians, because his arc is never concluded because... Are the Asgardians good or bad? Is an experience that we have through Thor of what it means to be a good man. And that's why the character is so interesting is we're looking at this as ourselves. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be good?
2: So you're saying you put some thought into this. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) I'm he stealing every he asked, every gonna, bit of that. I'm going to see this as an article total. and be
4: like, "This guy really knows his mythology." Yeah. I,
2: I, look, yes. I I think honestly, Coy, you are now the 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 crowd hype. You're the, the you're the warm up <laughs> act for anytime Joel has to give a speech in front of the the, the corporate bigwigs because that was. Oh no, I'm
3: not following that.
2: Impressive. <laughs> yeah, you may want to have Coy be the headline. He's my, my ghostwriter. You guys, the world's reopening. You guys
4: are down the street anytime. I will do 25 MCU properties. Line them up. I'm ready. I actually introduced this film for the Russo brothers at the the twenty three in the road to Endgame uh, at, at the LCAP. cap. So they had they had these films being introduced, yeah. them, and people knew that I was one of the the rare Dark World defenders. So I got to introduce Winter Soldier, which is my favorite film, Guardians, which is my second favorite film. This film falls right between the Iron Man three era. So I got to, and then they set this at three in the morning because they expected people to sleep through it. So I came out and gave like a for Asgard speech because this film is so important. And it was really cool to be recognized by Kevin Feige and the Russo brothers for understanding why this film is important. And uh, yeah, the, the, Thor mythology means so much to me and especially from the comic books. So that's, I have put some thought into it,
2: could not have picked a better guest or a better. Uh... A co-host a book for this particular episode and i take none of that credit thank you to producer lucy and i do have one more trivia question just to break the tie but we're going to get to that on the other side of our mailbag segment we got a quick one today but we still get music chris quarry says jennifer's body feminist masterpiece or schlock okay good question there We are the perfect
3: panel to answer this question, I have to say. Joel, would you like to weigh in while you have the floor? My fellow white men, let's let's discuss this (laughs) film from Karen Kusama. Um, Well, I will say about this film that I like it a lot. I think it is incredibly underrated. Uh, It features in a little book called Rotten Movies We Love, where the argument is precisely made that not only is it potentially a feminist masterpiece, but it's a good damn time. And it's really smart. And I think what's really and, you know, I think, sorry, I'm going to I'm 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 off now. But the thing that did underserve this film was the marketing of it in many ways. That Mm -hmm. poster of Megan Fox uh, really selling it as something that it wasn't that got a lot of teenage boys into that theater, expecting something altogether different, having only seen Megan in Transformers um, and then getting that poster as the image. Uh, And what they got was a more interesting challenge to the horror genre that's really entertaining um, and features a very good performance from Megan Fox, uh, a very underrated and unfairly maligned performance from Megan Fox. Yeah, she's great in
2: it. feminist
3: masterpiece, not my place to say, good film. Absolutely.
2: You're right. I mean, the the combination of Megan Fox on the poster and the movie title being Jennifer's body, it it kind of you you can understand why some some teenagers might have gone awry walking in to that movie. So I did promise that I had one more trivia question and this could break the time. I I got
4: an answer. Can I can I speak on Jennifer's body briefly?
2: You can speak on anything you want, Coy. You are the new editor in chief. So, yes, you can (laughs) say whatever you want.
4: I would argue Jennifer's body is one of those examples where knowing too much about someone's personal stuff they're going through hurt the film because this was when we were objectifying Megan Fox completely and it was awful and, and that poor woman was... Hounded by paparazzi, and she was seen as this thing she didn't want to be seen as because she needed to market other films. She was unfairly attacked for the things she said about Michael Bay that then were, were mm-hmm. seemingly found true. So I would say this is one of those times where it, this was on the cusp of the full exposure to where now movie stars are going away because everyone's trying to be a movie star and everyone's five minutes on YouTube is taking away from the grandiose nature of what seeing someone as an icon was in the up until the 80s. We had a we had a, a separation from view were to movie and that had its own problems too but I would say this was in that transition period where everyone knew everything about everyone everyone's drama was everywhere everyone dating someone was more important than their movie being released so it wasn't an opportunity for it to be seen as the feminist masterpiece that it I would say it was but I'm also not the right person to quantify that but I think that it was trying to subvert expectations in a time where that wasn't available for that poor actress who's now seen as much more of a force than she was seen as then and it should be said that it was spoke like the title's ironic in a way. And that Mm. wasn't an option because of how it was marketed. So I think it's unfair because of the marketing, because of how much we were in Megan Fox's business and because of how we let people walk all over women back then. And I think we're working on that now. And I think now it would be seen much better.
2: Good answers from both of you. Yeah, I had my five minutes on YouTube phase and now I get a whole hour show to talk about <laughs> whatever movies I feel like pivoting to. But we do have to break this trivia tie. So very quickly, here's the question and pay attention to it because it could be tricky. What was the first on-screen appearance of the character Thor, not limited to the MCU? Whoever the Babysitting. Joel Mears gets it and for a bonus point who played thor in that movie vincent d'onofrio king vincent d'onofrio shows up in a cameo as his truck driver thor because the little girl wants to be thor in adventures and babysitting which of course has the best babysitter performance i'm looking at you mary poppins of all time with elizabeth shu
3: can i confess something please (laughs) there's a reason i know that uh i know it because i know it but there's a reason i know it so quickly was because just yesterday it's one of my jobs as the editor-in-chief of rotten tomatoes to review all the video Uh that is about to be put onto our over the top channel, a channel you can find on the Roku channel. Uh, and uh, it's called the Rotten Tomatoes Channel go seek it out but you'll see Mark Ellis there often doing little interstitial uh, chats and things Corey, am and I giving him the, the answer I didn't know I was giving him <laughs> the answer <laughs> and yesterday as I was brewing them little one minute snippets of Mark just giving his sort of fireside chat thoughts he went off on a tangent about the adventures of babysitting specifically citing Thor specifically singling out Vincent D'Onofrio <laughs> so it's very fresh in my mind this seems Coy, to me I like apologize. there was some
4: insider trading at
3: Rotten Tomatoes I feel yeah. like so He (laughs) had no idea this was coming. He had no no idea I've seen that.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, look, um, you did get a new job and a big promotion today, so I think uh, it's fair. I've
3: lost my job. The
4: cost, (laughs) it's worth it. I'd say it's fair overall.
2: Joel, Joel loses his job but wins the trivia here on Rotten Tomatoes is wrong so thank you both for for joining me and just, and just a great conversation that I, I whenever we get us all in a room we have great talks about movies but when you give me Thor the Dark World you say okay well how where are we going with this movie this was so much fun and Koi I, I know you got a lot of big things in the oven right now you can't talk about all of them but Koi Cast is, is that the best place for folks to find you currently and all the stuff that you got going on
4: so Koi Cast is on anywhere you get your podcast, Koi Cubed is my YouTube channel that I started at the beginning of quarantine because uh, Mark and I are usually at studios together, but then you know the world stopped. So I had to learn what OBS was by watching a lot of 12 year olds on YouTube and feeling very bad about myself. Uh, so I, I have a YouTube for all my news outlet stuff. So anywhere you type in my name, there's some format of me getting stuff to you because I, I it's like a bag of cats up here in the words of Loki. Uh, I have so much I want to share with folks. So movies, comics, anything pop culture, a little bit too much politics. Uh, I really love the experience of the, the the fandom and how much I used to hide my Spider-Man shirt and now I can wear it with pride. So h- hunt me down because I love this stuff so very much.
2: And do you have a movie recommendation for us that maybe is somewhere in the vein of Thor The Dark World for all the kiddies to check out?
4: Uh, You know, if they haven't seen it, they probably have. But I I think the closest thing to Dark World is I want to reference Chris Hemsworth's when he got cast as Thor. Cabin in the Woods is is Mm -hmm. regarded well, but it can never be overhyped because... That movie is a meta-modernist masterpiece. It understands exactly what it is. It really gets better with age, especially in a post-pandemic world. It's gonna be really interesting to look back on that isolation. The cast is perfect and uh, Chris Hemsworth was cast during the filming of that film and put on so much muscle that if you watch the film closely, there's actually scenes where they had to resize his shirt because his neck got bigger. So while they were filming, Hemsworth got so big that they had to change the wardrobe on an indie film for the God of Thunder. So it is a, it is a masterwork and Joss Whedon didn't know he was going to be Thor. So it just so happens to be produced by Joss and then he worked on the universe later. So there's a lot of fun synchronicity with Captain in the Woods. If you haven't seen it, it is genius.
2: I just hate when my neck gets all jacked and I got to buy different clothes. It really, really puts a damper on my week. Uh, Great performance today. By our returning champion, Coy Jander, as well as from Joel Mears. Joel, I want to give you the floor real quick, too. What are you working on right now Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, other projects you got going on? You mentioned Rotten Tomatoes, the book that we have uh, that is currently available everywhere. Now, I imagine at some point we might get a sequel to Rotten Movies We Love, the book. And if you have Coy right the forward, I just want to warn you, it's going to look like a <laughs> Harry Potter tome because it's going to go from here to here. It's going to be a big, big, long forward.
3: Right, and I'm gonna put my name directly <laughs> underneath it.
1: Backspace um backspace.
3: now we may we may have another book in the works. I'm just I don't think I'm allowed to officially announce anything yet, but we Ooh. we may have another And then have an introduction written by me, slash Koi. Um but that is what we do. We've got a few things. We've got obviously this wonderful podcast. As I mentioned, we've got the Rotten Tomatoes channel, which you can find on Roku. So many things. Follow us on Rotten Tomatoes at Rotten Tomatoes across all your great social media. Um platforms, I guess we say. Um, Shout out to things you should watch. Don't watch this show, but uh, Home and Away is the best breeding ground for future superstars. Home (laughs) and Away is an Australian soap opera uh, where Mr. Hemsworth got his start, along with a bunch of other uh, awesome Australians uh, that you know, from Melissa George to Ryan Quantin and all these other sun-soaked hotties. Um, But if you're looking for a film or TV recommendation, I believe the timing of when this podcast lands will be around the time of In the Heights or In the Heights is coming out in about a week. And that film is an absolute blast. And you should absolutely go and see it and dance in the aisles, in theatres if it's safe. Uh, And if you're staying home, I suggest watching season two of Feel Good um, and watch season one of Feel Good as well, which has the wonderful May. Martin, comedian based uh, in the UK, Canadian though, really, really smart uh, a Netflix gem that I don't think gets the attention it quite deserves.
2: There you go. Some great recommendations and Lucy, make sure that we uh, rebook Joel for some appearance coming up when he can talk about maybe that mystery book that he teased us with. So what book? Y'all can email <laughs> us, like I said, rtiswrong at rotten tomatoes.com. If you have thoughts on what movies we should be talking about, opinions on what movie we just did talk about, we love hearing from our fans, from our listeners, from our certified Fresh Ketchup crew. Please let us know what movies you want us to talk about on future episodes of rotten tomatoes is wrong you can subscribe rate review wherever you enjoy podcasts do whatever that platform encourages you to do to get us up in the numbers we love 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 when you share us with your family with your friends because at the end of the day we're just celebrating movies and why we love them so for the great editor-in-chief of rotten tomatoes joel mears the host of koi cast and koi cube koi Jandrew. Sterling performance by both gentlemen today. I was merely along for the ride. Producer Lucy, who is back with us once again. We love her so much. Christian Rubacaba, Brian Perez, the entire team here at Rotten Tomatoes. And for my co-host, Jacqueline Coley, I am merely Mark Ellis saying thank you and we'll catch you next week. One,
5: two, three. Four. those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.